0: to the podcast from the Sunday Night Service at New Life Church. The Sunday Night Service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Here we are in the book of Luke. We are in week 11 in our series through the book of Luke, and um, I just want to say, as a kind of a reminder, I think we all do this, but just as a good thing to do, bring your Bibles to church, and I I know that sort of goes without saying, but sometimes I think with the screen stuff and all of that, it can get real easy to sort of come and spectate, but I would love it if you brought your Bibles and and a pen and just begin to mark up things and underline and circle words and all of that, because, look, the goal ultimately is not to have... um, one teacher, uh, but the goal is for us to know how to read the scriptures and to let them get inside of us. And there is something about reading the scriptures communally that is always, that has been part of our story as the people of God. It's not privatized in that sense, but uh, at the same time there's something that we, we, as we learn here, to go back and keep reading. And I would love it if if some of you wanted to read the book of Luke along with us. Maybe you're reading somewhere else in your devotional time, and that's great. But set aside some time and just read. We're obviously going through this, you know, I think, a couple Sundays per week or per chapter, rather, or something like that. So you can go ahead and follow with us, read a chapter a week, or even read large chunks of it and then come back to it. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good exercise. If, you're, if you can stand it, you know, sit still, rather, for the time that it would require, sit down and read it all the way through. Sit down and read the whole gospel all the way through, and, uh, and ask yourself, okay, what do we see here? What are the themes uh, at work? Um, a couple of fellas from the Sunday night service and I, we started a Bible study of the book of James last week. And uh, we read through it this morning, out loud, just the whole letter. And, and it's great to sort of step back from a book of the Bible, from a letter, and to see kind of the theme through it. Luke, um, it was, was most likely written in two different scrolls, but you've got Luke and you've got Acts. And they're written, they're meant to sort of go together. But one of the themes that I think we're going to, 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 uh, to see each week as we study the book of Luke in different ways is just this theme of Jesus bringing the good news of the kingdom to people that otherwise would have been on the outside. And so you see Luke emphasizing the poor without spiritualizing it to be the poor in spirit. Uh, you see Luke uh, particularly interested in Jesus' healing and uh, I think certainly one part of that could be, could be okay, well, look, Luke, Luke wasn't Luke maybe a doctor and wasn't he interested in healings and all of that? That's certainly a big part of it. But what I want you to see is that the sick, sociologically, were outsiders. Uh, the sick were the ones who were cast out. So every time Luke records Jesus healing, it's not just to do a circus trick or, a, or, a, or a impress his friends. It's Jesus saying to the social outcast you're in, I'm bringing you in, to the leper, I'm touching you, and and so on and so on. And so all of these different things show us this thread of Luke showing Jesus to be this Jewish Messiah who's come to break down the dividing wall, just like Ephesians 2, our New Testament reading. What a stunning reading, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've heard so much about Jesus and the cross being breaking down the hostility between man and God, and that is certainly true, but do we talk enough about Jesus at the cross breaking down the hostility between insiders and outsiders, between people who are proud to be a certain people and those who are not? We'll come back to that theme because of tonight's text. But I want to suggest this, that perhaps Luke is particularly interested in this theme of Jesus welcoming outsiders because Luke is himself an outsider. He is a Greek. He's not a Jew. He's not one of the twelve. And so in a few different ways, here is Luke himself being the guy that, that understands what it's like to be on the outside looking in, but also the guy that can appreciate what Jesus has done by bringing the kingdom to even such as these, okay? So with that sort of framework, we'll jump right in tonight. Uh, no, No clever anecdotal story to begin with tonight, just straight to the text. Luke 6, verse 1. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples picked some heads of wheat, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. Pretty organic dudes. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, and how he entered the house of God, took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests alone? And he gave it to his companions. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Get up and stand here. So he rose and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, which is a funny thing to say to a man who can't move his hand. Stretch out your hand. And so the man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do with Jesus. Now, what is the issue here? What's, what's the point of this little set of stories that Luke is trying to tell us. When you were reading the Gospels in particular, a good question to have in the back of our mind is what does the Gospel writer want us to see about Jesus? So specifically in this case, what what Luke is telling us about Jesus? Or if we were to phrase that as a question, what is Luke telling us about Jesus? Uh, What is is he trying to say with the story? Um, Jesus, first of all, let's talk about a couple of different things, okay? The first first of the the things, and I want to uh, let me see. I wanted to say something about the Sabbath thing. We'll come back to that. Okay. Um, the first, one of the first things about this story, the first story to, to recognize is this. Jesus compares himself to David, and he says, okay, look, don't you remember this story about David picking the grain and, and, uh, or, or eating the bread, and, and that was not supposed to be done, but he did it. You have to wonder if in the back of his mind or in the back of his listeners, there was this, wait a second, did you just do that? Did you just compare yourself to David? Who is David in Israel's history? Only the greatest king ever? Only the one from whose house they would come another king who would rule? So when Jesus says, oh, don't worry about what me and my boys are doing here with this grain, don't you remember this story of David? It's not so much an issue of saying, oh, well, You know, David did it. I think everybody's allowed to do this, which, by the way, the issue, the work, according to sort of the the, the, the rabbinic law, was not the work was not in the picking. The work was in the rubbing of the grain, but that's neither here nor there. And so Jesus is saying, okay, look, haven't you heard what David did? And you have to wonder if this is a reference to saying, look, I am David-like. I am like David. David. Now, what, 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 where was David when he did that? He, David had been anointed king, but was not yet give, had not yet been given the throne, right? He knew who he was. He knew that he would one day rule, but it wasn't his time yet, and he's running. And there's people that are against him. And here's Jesus, you have to wonder, coming off of this anointing in Luke 4. And if Luke has in mind for us to see this parallel that look just as David had been anointed king but was not yet king on the throne and he took the holy bread so Jesus is saying he is David like he too has been anointed the Messiah Luke 4 he just read that scroll and then is not, but not yet fully ruling and here he is having this right to do this but the other reference that Jesus makes here is the son of man now we've come across this phrase a few times now. This is the third time in a two-chapter spread that Jesus has called himself Son of Man. Uh, in general, you might think it odd when a person starts referring to themselves in third person, you know. I like that Seinfeld episode about Jerry. You know, Jerry doesn't like that. Uh, or whoever the guy's name is. So it, it seems sort of odd anyway. Well, why is Jesus referring to himself as the, in third person as Son of Man? But the Son of Man reference is very particular. And maybe some of his listeners miss this. But at least some would have caught this. Daniel 7 has this prophecy that says that one like the Son of Man would descend from the clouds and he would rule and he would destroy and he would judge God's enemies. It was a Messiah reference. The Son of Man is not in and of itself a divinity claim. It's not Jesus saying, I'm God. It's Jesus saying, I am the, the chosen one of God. I am he, I'm the one who's going to come and set this right. So when he says, I am son of man, or the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, it's, he's, he's building this case. First, he's comparing himself to David, and now he's just flat out saying, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who has authority, the authority of God on earth. This is a pretty significant claim. The sovereign one of God, the one who's come to vindicate Israel and rule. Luke wants us to see that, what, that Jesus here is this anointed one, that he is this long-awaited one. But now we have to say, well, what is Jesus telling us about the Sabbath? What Luke is telling us about Jesus is that Jesus is aware of his anointedness, his messiahhood, messiahship, if you will, his kingship. But what is Jesus saying about the Sabbath? One of the reasons we had the, Tes- the New Testament reading again be Ephesians 2 for tonight, and I, I choose the readings each week to sort of coincide with our text. Uh, and the, one of the reasons I chose that is so that we would see this amazing thing here where Paul says in Ephesians 2 about this law, this written code that separated, that was this barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Now, this may be a bit hard for us to kind of grasp, but, but in the time of Jesus in the first century, there were at least... Three, three very core, uh, central Jewish practices that marked out their identity. It was circumcision, dietary restrictions, and Sabbath keeping. And you may say, well, what's the big deal? Why those three? What did it matter? How come it became so important to hang on to Jewish identity? Wouldn't you think that part, some of these things developed while they were living in Babylon? When you're living as an, in exile and you can't go to the temple and offer sacrifices and you can't do certain things, but there could be a few things you could do. You could control what you ate. That's why the Daniel story, of, of, the Daniel story is held up as this almost too good to be true figure who's the idyllic Jew, the Jew who can live in Babylon and not eat filthy meat. Okay? So there's this, there's this identity that begins to form where the Jews living in, in exile say, okay, look, we can't do our normal stuff. We can't do the sacrificial system. We can't do this and that. But certain things became more meaningful to them, things like dietary restrictions. Okay, we're not going to eat this. We're not, you know, we're, this is going to be a way of marking ourselves out. But another one of those things became Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping was a way of saying we are not like The Gentiles, we are not like them. We are a special people. Paul later uses this phrase, works of the law. And we've seen this phrase now in in different uh, literature from the intertestamental period, between Old Testament and New Testament. There's other writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls and whatnot that use the same phrase, works of the law, not to mean the Ten Commandments, not to mean all of it in general, but to mean these specific observances that marked them out as Jews. Now, why I'm making a point to say this is because we think of these things, and we think of, oh, Sabbath and no pork and all that, and we tend to sort of say, man, what bondage they were living under. But there is not a true Jew in the first century who would have thought of that as bondage. They would have thought of that as a prideful thing. It was a sign that they were... You know what it's kind of like? I don't know if, you've, if any of you have lived as an American citizen in another country, but it would be a little bit, perhaps, like this, like living as an expatriate, as an American in another country, and the 4th of July comes along, and nobody else cares if it's the 4th of July. Nobody else is celebrating it, but you're an American, so doggone it, you're going to celebrate the 4th of July, you know? I remember this. We lived in Portland for three years, and... and, and I was captivated, my imagination was captivated by all things America and all things American. And so when we moved back to Malaysia, I was 13, and I was, I was a Malaysian citizen, let's be clear about this, but I was so fascinated with this American thing, and I was missing America, that the first 4th of July we had in Malaysia, I busted out my trumpet, yes trumpet, I used to play, and I played the Star Spangled Banner in our home just for our family, because I just wanted to... You know, it was sort of like my badge of like, man, I'm not just like you other Malaysians. I've been to the States. (laughs) Stupid, I know. Very silly and petty and prideful and all that. Okay, But this is a little bit like like what these things became to the Jews. In the midst of a culture where their own king, Herod, is this sort of half-breed Jew, and there's all kinds of compromises and all kinds of intermingling between Jewish culture and Gentile culture, there were some Jews who were so devout, the Pharisees were among them, who said, look, doggone it, we are the people of God. And we're proud that we're the people of God. And so when sundown happens on a Friday, we're not going to work. We're not even going to pick a grain and rub it with our hands. We're not going to do, this is how we show that we are God's people. It was very special to them. And so here comes Jesus, using Messiah language, comparing himself to their greatest king ever, and says, No, I, look, uh, it, what is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? And starts redefining Sabbath for them. And they're thinking, Whoa, how can you say this? How can you do this? What we have to see is that Jesus is not flaunting the law, he is striking down a barrier. He's not flaunting the law. He's striking down a barrier. I think if you don't see this, if you miss this, you sort of imagine Jesus as the party frat boy who kind of just broke the rules and rubbed it in the Pharisees' faces. That is not what's going on. In fact, there were very particular Jewish observances that Paul later deconstructs. Let's see. What are they? Dietary restrictions, circumcision, and certain Jewish holy days. Hmm. Is Paul all of a sudden an, an anti-law guy? No. What's happened is Paul was realizing, look, we got a congregation of Jews and Gentiles, and we don't need dividing, laws, dividing walls built up anymore. We don't need these barriers anymore. So when Jesus breaks the Sabbath in the eyes of the Pharisees, he's not, he's not flaunting, you know, sort of just despising the law and kind of you know, flaunting his disobedience to the law, I should say. He's striking down a barrier. Very intentionally, it's Jesus again saying, go beyond your religious barriers and see that the kingdom's coming to outsiders. Sabbath, what Jesus tells us about the Sabbath, what we see Him doing here, is fulfilling in a very real way the calling of Abraham, is to remind the Jewish people that look You were chosen so you could be the vehicle of blessing to all peoples. Don't you remember Isaiah's words about being a light? Here I am striking down this barrier. But he does redefine for us in some ways the Sabbath. And so this evening, this could be a bit tricky, and I don't know that this will be successful, but I'm going to try to kind of hold two things in tension. And the first is this idea of striking down the barrier And the second is what Jesus is actually saying about the Sabbath and how it kind of redefines it. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll see how the two hold each other in tension. Jesus does one thing on the Sabbath uh, on a couple of different occasions, and that is heal. And you see this theme, maybe, or maybe we're meant to see that one of the things that Sabbath is about, it's not about dividing wall, it's not about barrier, it's not about a badge of pride it's about becoming whole the sabbath is about being made whole and so him healing on the sabbath and saying look is it against the law to do good is it wrong to bring wholeness part of the rabbinic law was look it's not it's okay to heal on the sabbath if it is a life-threatening disease but if it can wait till sunday then it should more or less And so here's this guy with this withered hand, and Jesus is saying, look, if you're okay with bringing wholeness to a person who's on the edge of death, then bring wholeness. The Sabbath is about being whole. the second thing that that we see about Jesus that's very interesting, it's almost, in a way, Jesus keeping Sabbath-like rhythms without it being exactly on Sabbath days, and that is the Sabbath is about being with the Father. Time and time again, we see Jesus withdrawing and pulling away and going to be with the Father. And it's not specified that it's on the Sabbath, but it, it is a Sabbath-like retreat. Uh, listen to Luke six twelve through 13, the very next two verses after our text. And now it was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named Apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Here's Jesus withdrawing to pray. In fact, in the previous chapter, in Luke 5, there's this interesting sequence of events where all who are sick press in, saying, oh, we've heard, you've started healing, come. And then Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Such an interesting rhythm that he kept in his life, striking down the barrier of a particular day, but redefining Sabbath to be about wholeness and about this retreating to be with the Father. I want to take each of those things and talk about how maybe we fit in this story. I wonder if we could ever see ourselves as the Pharisees. And our first response is to say, well, of course we're not. I mean, we're my goodness, we know that we need the Lord. And, I, and, and sometimes we kind of misapply what it means to be a Pharisee and, and sort of insinuate that, that anybody who's not hip is a Pharisee. You know, that's certainly not the case. The, 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 the way that I, I see myself as a Pharisee is with this question. How does our zeal for God exclude others? How does our zeal, How does my zeal for God, my zeal in being God's people, uh, exclude others? I want to suggest tonight, at my own peril, two ways that I think we do this. First, with members of our own faith. I, 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 Sophia is in kindergarten, and there's this game that they play at their kindergarten every once in a while called "What's in the Bag." And you, you take home this paper bag and you put an item in it. And then you, you tell them what the letter is, right? And, and then you give them a couple clues, you know. So we've had it a couple times. And sometimes we try to be really clever with it, you know. We, 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 I think we put an orange in there once. And we said, I'm a color, but you can eat me, you know. So we, we just try to be really cryptic like that. But, but the, the whole point is for the kids in her kindergarten class to guess what's in the bag. I think in some ways we have this bag that we call Christian and we hold it out to different people and say, well, guess what's in the bag? And they say, well, well, I think it just means to believe it. Oh, nope, we've actually added quite a bit more to the bag. And the bag started in 325 A.D. with this creed sort of pulling together the different creedal formula statements from the church in the first and second centuries. And, and, and they, they, they wrote it down and said, here it is. Here is what's in the bag. Here is what it means to be Christian and then over time we've said, yeah, I don't know. I think we ought to add this in here too. And then we add this. I, I was recently speaking at a conference where they asked me to, over, to look over the statement of faith. And one of the items in the statement of faith was, we believe that, uh, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues as the sign. Now, I was uncomfortable with this. This could be another rabbit trail or a reason for you to walk out. I hope neither happened. But I was uncomfortable with this because this is an example of how we've taken what was in the bag and just started adding more and more to it. And then all of a sudden someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we give him this huge knapsack and said, here, now guess what's in the bag. It's like, I don't know what it means. And, 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 and we've added and added and added. And so someone one day says, well, I'm not sure that I can believe in, in a literal six days creation. I'm not sure I can believe in it. And we say, well, that's all in the bag. So take it or leave it. And how many many people do you know that then start to say, well, I guess I'll leave it. And they set the bag down and say, well, I just can't take that bag. Many of us have come from different backgrounds and, and perhaps in those backgrounds your faith was not meaningful to you. But I implore you by the love of our Father that you don't begin to say, that everybody from that background is unsaved. There's, some, there's a lot of mean talk that happens out of zeal for God. That out of the zeal that we've discovered in our personal relationship and say you came from a Catholic church that was this and that and it wasn't, you know, whatever, and then you had this awakening in a Pentecostal church and then you conclude, well, all Catholics are not saved. I'm praying for them to be saved. Please stop such foolishness. This is our zeal for God building a barrier within the same family. We can't do that. We can't talk like that. We can't start saying, well, they're in and they're out, and they don't have what's in my bag, and so they're not this and they're not that, and this is my... St-, you know, and st- One of the reasons we say the creed each week is so we can remember what's in the bag and to say, Father, Son... Holy Spirit, this is what it means to be a Christian. And let's strike down the other meaningless barriers that we've spent so much time building up. Okay. But there's another way that our zeal for God builds barriers. And this is sometimes in our barriers for those outside the faith where we think that what it means to be zealous for God is to hate other religions. Now, to be clear, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe that there are... That the, that I, I, I Rather, let me say this. I believe there are false religions. But, but there's, that's not a reason to be unkind to other religions. Not denominations, other religions. I first realized that I needed to distinguish that when I came to America, and someone said, oh, yeah, I came from another religion. Really? Which is that? Baptist. Like, um, that's like another denomination, not a religion, you know. I grew up in a country of many religions like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know. Anyway, um, there was a remarkable picture that Patton tweeted a, a couple weeks ago during the Egyptian revolution prior to Mubarak actually leaving. And it was this picture of Muslims in a mosque on a Friday A very familiar scene to me. I I grew up two blocks away from a mosque uh, in Malaysia, and I woke up every morning to the sound of the call to prayers. I I understand this. It's not an idea to me. I I, I know it. Um, And the scene is a scene of these Muslims kneeling down at prayer time and Christians standing forming a human shield uh, so that in the midst of this protest and unrest, these people trying to pray would not be killed. I, like Patton, thought it was a beautiful picture. There were others who disagreed after I posted it on Facebook. Facebook's so wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> All kinds of people disagree. People I never knew, friends I never knew I had. And, um, and I find it interesting that we feel this need to have our zeal for God translate into to the place where we can't do something loving for someone else. You know what's even more interesting? is oh, about a month or so earlier, after that church in Egypt had the bomb on Christmas Eve go off outside the church, you remember this? There was a scene the next week at Mass of Muslims being a human shield for the Christians so they could worship. Now, to be clear, I don't think they worship the same God. But should our faith lead us to meanness? Or should our zeal for God lead us to kindness? This is how I think we maybe are like this. We're so intent on our zeal for God that we've built up these barriers, real barriers within our family of God, of those in Christ. And then these, these other barriers where we're, it translates into a kind of meanness. The second question from this text, I think is uh, is maybe a uh, you can breathe easy now. Or at least maybe I feel like I can. I'm done with the uh, sensitive bits. Is the question: How do we let the Sabbath keep us? How do we let the Sabbath keep us? So I don't want my zeal for God to sort of make me this person that's you know pushing outsiders. But how do we let the Sabbath keep us? It's it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, historically, the church has had two broad categories for the disciplines. There are disciplines uh, that are more or less disciplines of disengagement, where you sort of withdraw, unplug. uh, It's solitude. It's silence. It's fasting, where you're going without something that is not bad. And then there's disciplines of engagement, where it's specific. You're meditating on something. You're, you're, You're reading the Gospels over and over again. You're reading the red letters over and over again, the words of Christ. You're meditating on a psalm. You're praying the psalm. There are these specific things, but are there rhythms in our life where we even allow space for that? One of the most fascinating things about this whole discussion of technology is uh, not so much is technology good or bad, but are we aware of the ways that technology is changing us? Are we aware of how it's changing us? We were talking yesterday about attention spans being shortened because i mean i i'm I'm telling you it's pathetic i used to be able to sit down and read a book for an hour and now like every 10 minutes i'll read the book and then check twitter and then you know it's just it's ridiculous but i wonder beyond that is there anything in our rhythm that makes space for the sacred that makes space for us to unplug to disconnect to fill up to meditate to sit still before the father to do as jesus did to leave Even while the crowds were pressing in. This, I think, is one of the most curious things about the way Jesus lived out his messiahship. Because if there was ever a person who should have worked around the clock, it was him. If there was ever a person who had a reason to just come on, keep getting it done, it was him. Yet he waits 30 years before he starts. He only spends three years, and the three that he spends are in a relatively small region. Jesus, there's other means of travel. You should really try to make it over to Corinth or Ephesus or kind of stays. And even then, when people are pressing in, waiting to be healed, people who had needs that only he could meet, here's Jesus withdrawing. How do we let the Sabbath keep us whole? It's a challenge for us in our home because we have young kids. And so the idea of Solitude or silence is just, it's a joke, you know, like, wow, really? Silence? Yeah, sure, sure. And yet we try to allow ourselves and allow each other to find a little bit of space in the week to say, okay, we're not. And try to to designate ahead of time. It doesn't always work, but try to designate ahead of time. Maybe this day is our day to run errands, and maybe this day is the day that we're going to do something with the family, whether it's Uh, you you know, going out or lazing around, staying home or whatever it is. Space to pray, space to read, space to be alone. A Sabbath is not a day off. A Sabbath is the space to let the Father speak by His Spirit. It's much more than vegging in front of the TV. It's sitting still before the Lord. It's allowing Him to, To breathe in us. There's something very powerful about the Hebrew notion of a day beginning at sundown because the first thing you do is you eat together. You stop long enough to prepare the meal, to sit down and enjoy the meal, to laugh, to talk, and then the next thing you do is sleep. And then you wake up the next day and when you wake up, half your day is already gone and you've been sleeping. If you look throughout the scriptures, some of the ways stories are told, you know, and Abraham got up in the morning with Isaac, and Joseph in Luke's gospel, and Joseph got up, in, there's these different moments where the person wakes up in the morning and begins to act out what the Lord has shown them. Very similar thing to Jesus in Luke 6, where he gets up and then chooses his disciples, but only he's been praying all the night through. But there's this, there's this sense that when you awake, you are joining a work already in progress. It's the Father's work and you're the latecomer to the party. But you get to participate. It's just that you're not the first mover. You're not the prime mover. What a beautiful thing to have the rhythms in our life, even the daily rhythm of sleeping and awaking. And what if you woke up each morning and said, God, thank you that you've already been awake for six hours, 12, however long you sleep. And I'm joining your work today as I go to work as I go into my job, as I go into this, that I'm joining a work already in progress. I'm joining your Spirit's work. But I think these two questions, how does our zeal for God exclude others, and how do we let the Sabbath keep us, I think these two questions must be held in tension if we're going to get it right. Because if we cling to sort of these rhythms, and I've got to have this Sabbath, and I'm, you know, it doesn't, take long before our own selfishness turns something holy into something selfish and then all of a sudden what began out of zeal for god begins to be a barrier to others and no oh, i don't want this and no i can't yeah. but on the other hand if we if we if we don't think about how the sabbath keeps us then it's all about this well there's no barriers and then no barriers devolves into no boundaries And then it's just a a sloppy life of frenetic living. Jesus, it seems, didn't live at that pace. My friend Gary, sitting right here, has said to me, I wonder if we could take the words of that song, The World Behind Me, The Cross Before Me, we understand the meaning of that phrase and there's something beautiful about that, but what if we flipped it and saw something beautiful about this? the cross behind us, the world before me? That is maybe the mystery of keeping these two questions in tension. Because Sabbath keeping is not about keeping a day for a day's sake, nor is it about keeping you for your sake. Sabbath keeping is about keeping us whole for the world's sake. Let me just read this again. Sabbath keeping is not about keeping a day for a day's sake, nor is it about keeping you for your sake. Sabbath keeping is about keeping us whole for the world's sake. You want to hear maybe one of the most unchristian bits of advice we hear all the time? Do it for yourself, man. Come on, you can change, but don't do it for me, do it for you. That doesn't belong in our lexicon. Because what the life that Christ calls us to is a life that says, "I will keep this rhythm of rest and prayer, but I do it so that the world can have this life. Again, these questions held in intention. In I'm keeping the Sabbath so it is keeping me so that I can go to this world, this world which, in which barriers have been stricken down, a world in which outsiders are welcomed in. But I'm not ready to do that kind of love to have that kind of love if I'm not whole. But I want to move us out of what our culture tells us. Church is not about learning better ways to keep ourselves so we can be better. Hooray. Church is about being the community of God, the people of God, one in Christ, saying, Spirit of God, change us, make us holy so that we become the bread that is broken for the world, that we become this this blood that is spilled for the world, so that we become the people who are whole, and our wholeness is for the world's sake. Jesus on the Sabbath is saying to the Pharisees, your law has become for your sake and for your wholeness and for your pride and for your exclusivism, and I'm here to remind you that you were chosen for the sake of the unchosen. You were blessed for the sake of those who were not. You are the people of God so that to every person with the withered hand that we meet, we can say, Be whole. To every life that we meet that's trembling in fear and, 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 and maybe uh, coming out of different situations of abuse or rejection or being ostracized, that we can say out of the wholeness that we have been given, we can say, Be whole with the love of Christ. Sabbath-keeping is not for you, for your sake. It's for the sake of the world. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to be in Jesus, to be His disciples. Amen? Let's pray. Father, may we trust that You are the creator and the sustainer of all things. May we trust that You set the world in motion. Jesus, may we follow you into times, rhythms, places, moments, hours, days of quietness and rest and stillness. But Jesus, take us from that place and lead us out into the world so that we can carry this life to the world. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to not let our zeal for God become hateful barriers. Help us to know what it means to cling to your truth and to your cross and yet to love the world. Help us. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.